I'm Zoe Bisbing, and this is the Full Bloom Podcast, where we're nurturing a more embodied and inclusive next generation. According to popular wisdom, informed most prominently by the American Diabetes Association, if you're, quote, overweight, it impacts even more than your risk of developing type 2 diabetes. They say it leads to unhealthy cholesterol, high blood pressure, heart disease, high blood sugar, and even stroke. They have good news, too. They say losing just 10 to 15 pounds can make a big difference. And yet, study after study shows that weight loss prescriptions fail people more than 95% of the time, perpetuate unhealthy weight cycling, also known as yo-yo dieting, and internalized weight stigma, which in and of itself contributes to increased risk for an array of medical issues, one being type 2 diabetes. So what are we supposed to do with this discordance? It's confusing to a lot of people, and I get it. Most folks I've interacted with who are new to the health at every size paradigm start with intrigue and then become suspicious about medical conditions that we have collectively learned to associate with things like poor diet, sedentary lifestyles, fatness, and even laziness. And then they always seem to ask me, but what about diabetes? What if we have a family history of diabetes? or have been diagnosed pre-diabetic? Or what if we just wanna do what we can to protect our kids from inheriting this piece of our family history? Can we safely align with fat positivity and health at every size and reject the diet mentality and responsibly navigate health conditions like this? I often freeze when I get these questions because I am not uniquely qualified to answer them. However, my guest today, is. Dr. Gregory Dodell is a size-inclusive endocrinologist with a private practice here in New York City and a psychologist wife who literally wrote a book called The Diet-Free Revolution. He's here with answers, and I'm so appreciative. Dr. Dodell, welcome to the show. I wonder if we could kind of center a young person and if you could give us like a 101 on endocrinology, basically so that uh, an adolescent could understand, which is probably about my grade level when it comes to oh, come <laughs> medicine on. anyway. No so way. can we start there? Absolutely. So endocrinology is basically the field that looks at hormones and hormones are fascinating because they travel throughout the body and they f- affect everything from metabolism to growth, to mood, to heart rate. I mean, pretty much you name it the endocrine system is involved in it, you know, for the most part. And that's what, to me, um, is fascinating. And that's what drew me into the field of endocrinology, because if you make a diagnosis or you understand what's going on with regard to someone's endocrine system, hopefully you can really help them. And there's treatment for, you know, almost every endocrine condition out there. Um, so not only is the science interesting, but clinically it's very interesting and it can make a huge difference to someone's life. And uh, to me, it's the best, you know, part of medicine. <laughs> Of course. Of course. Well, it better be because that's your specialty. Well, and what you're saying, it's like, this is the specialty that kind of sounds like it could have the biggest impact because all of these systems that kind of flow from the work that you do are like vital for survival. 
Right, totally. And the, and the hormones circulate through the bloodstream and they work like locking keys, basically. So the hormone being, you know, this key that fits into this lock of like the different organs that can like turn it on and off and it can regulate, as I said, like different growth factors and metabolism and heart rate and sleep and pretty much you name something and I could probably be like, oh, that's tied with the endocrine system. Yeah. And to me, that's fascinating. It is. And and I guess it's also fascinating that it's about hormones. And I guess I'll invite you to geek out a little bit. What is cool to you about hormones? So hormones that they circulate through our whole system and they're just these cells, these proteins and and some of them like steroids come from cholesterol. And it's this whole transcription pathway that, you know, as I said, it fits into like different locks throughout our body and it can turn on or off all these functions. And to me, that's just the science of it. It's just really cool, mm-hmm. which totally geeked me out, but it is, <laughs> yeah. you know? Yeah. Well, it's like, it's sort of superpower. I mean, the body is just the body, you know, the endocrine system, like the cardiovascular, it's just so cool. Like I was just sitting with my daughter and we got her like this book of, you know, very elementary book. She's six. And like, she's looking through it and like looking at the arteries and the veins and like that the rib cage like protects the lungs and like the transition of oxygen amongst the cap. It's just really like cool and fascinating, you know? And if kids could kind of like jump into that and maybe that's like, you know, for your audience, like a way for them to appreciate like all the amazing functions of the body, you know, which just goes like such a long way. We know like how important gratitude is in general. So just like having a gratitude of like the endocrine system, the digestive system, whatever it could be, like it just would be powerful, I think, for for kids to grab onto. I agree. And I think that one of the coolest things about being a parent is that you get to rediscover all of these things. I have some of these books. I'll be curious to know which one you're talking about, but these anatomy books and these, again, very elementary, you know, how your body works books. And as a fully grown adult who didn't pay much attention in anatomy class in school, I think it's just so incredible. The Children's Museum, when they do the, you know, whole... Uh, oh, yeah, I love that. Ex- yeah, exhibit on the way the digestion works and the... And what you're describing, the blood vessels. And I mean, it is, it's a nice, and it's a nice connection to make that this, this is a way to have some reverence for the function of the body. I like that. Right. She was like going through the eye and I was like, yeah, I only had a couple weeks on that in med school. And I wish I like actually like paid more attention because it's so cool of like the lens and like how it moves like light through and then like turns into colors and like all this kind of stuff that I'm like, you know, what do they say? Like, you know, youth is wasted on the young or whatever it is. Like when you're like 25 or 16 or whatever it could be, you're just like, uh, like, let me get through this. <laughs> totally. It makes me think about the cow eye I got to dissect in uh, right. sixth grade. And I did not appreciate that nearly as much as I would right now. Right. Try explaining to my daughter that I like dissected a cadaver, you know, that's <laughs> like a little bit beyond. <laughs> but, but also, I mean, and I can't imagine that every person that goes through med school, and I guess we'll get to this, right? Because we do have this sort of paucity of physicians that really are attuned to what we're talking about here, health at every size, you know, weight inclusivity, et cetera. But I would imagine that being that up close and personal to the body in med school would, would be an opportunity to be amazed, be in awe to some extent of what the body can do. 
Yeah, totally. I mean, it was like that first two years, I mean, it's like goes really fast and you're just trying to like survive. But yeah, I mean, again, that may be an example of like youth being wasted on the young. Cause I probably was like, I just got to memorize this and like get through. Right. But yeah, looking back, like it's pretty amazing. Yeah. All the stuff that you can learn over the course of like two years. Lives not lived. <laughs> um, right. Well, you're giving us an overview of what endocrinology is. And so it, it's kind of a dumb question, but why do we need endocrinologists? Like when you try to explain it to your kids, not just what do you do, but why do we need them? Why are they so important? Right. Because we specialize in all these different features that the hormones impact. And it's important to have a broad, extensive knowledge of, of how the endocrine system works. So if needed, we can make a diagnosis if someone's hormones aren't working appropriately or if they need some hormone replacement or medications to help them function, then we could do that. And it can make a tremendous impact over the course of someone's life. Why do certain people's hormones not work? I know we're going to talk about diabetes in particular, but like, why do some people's hormones not work? I mean, a lot of it could be genetic. You know, of course, there's a genetic component to diabetes, there's a genetic component to thyroid and PCOS. Those are some of the things that we look at. But some of it could be, you know, lifestyle stuff. It could be stress. It could be not getting enough sleep. You know, if the body's in this fight or flight mode of the sympathetic nervous system, it can affect, you know, all the various endocrine systems, you know, and the hormones are really smart. And and if you're in these kind of stages or phases of life or whatever, there are changes Um, so it's environmental, but it's also genetic and there's all this interplay between the environment and, you know, our genetics, which is kind of fascinating to, to look at and dissect and, and diagnose if we need to. Yeah, no, I bet it's like being a um, detective in some ways. Right. Right. Um, well, okay. Let's home in on diabetes. It's always the big question that everybody has. So just start with the basics. What is type one versus type two diabetes? Give us that adolescent level education. Got it. Yeah. So that, that's an important question. And, you know, even adults and patients I see, I try and explain it, you know, on that level too, because it's important for people to understand, you know, what we're talking about so we could have educated discussions. So type one diabetes is, is an autoimmune condition. So what it means is that these antibodies are impacting the pancreas's ability to produce insulin. And insulin is the hormone that regulates our blood sugar. So people with type 1 diabetes, commonly younger, you know, kids, but, you know, could be up to 20s, 30s, even sometimes 40s, 50s, could have like late onset autoimmune diabetes called LADA. And those people require insulin in order to manage their blood sugar because the insulin from the pancreas is not being produced um, sufficiently to control the blood sugar versus type 2 diabetes is more of a condition of what we call insulin resistance, meaning that the pancreas is probably producing insulin at a normal amount or even sometimes a high amount, and the cells are just not as responsive to that insulin. So therefore, there are medications out there, and that's commonly where you talk about lifestyle and nutrition and all this stuff to help overcome that resistance. And therefore, they don't necessarily need insulin, but often, you know, as time goes on, they may. And so what are some commonly held beliefs about diabetes that you're aware of? Yeah. So, I mean, I think a lot of the the stigma and things like that around diabetes is like, it's your fault or it's a lifestyle mediated thing, or, you know, people, there's a lot of self-blame potentially with diabetes. Like if only I had eaten better or exercised more or taken care of myself. So there's a lot of misconceptions about that as being like a 
disorder of lifestyle, but a huge percentage of it is genetic. And I think we have to factor that in, number one. And number two, it doesn't really do anyone any good to like blame themselves, like why they got to where they got as far as having diabetes. And if the diabetes is not well controlled, like let's take it day by day um, and use the medications and other tools that we have to control it. So, you know, I think finger pointing and also people blaming themselves is, is problematic. I guess there's a lot of nuance there because lifestyle, I mean, it's so complicated with social determinants of health, which I think is one of the dots that we do try to connect here. Mm-hmm. But I think what can be tricky is lifestyle, right? Even that term, like what the hell does that even mean, right? right um, but it right. seems to connotate what you eat and how you move. And I think about how, so I've had three, I think three children, how, how many kids? Three, three kids. My middle, with my middle pregnancy, I had gestational diabetes, didn't have it with mm-hmm. the first, didn't have it with the third, had it with the second. And I remember just this sort of, yeah, like it's a mixed bag of feelings. What did I do? I've probably eaten too much sugar. Is this related to my weight? Like even with all I know and all I'm sort of obsessed with in this space, right? Body positive space. Wondering, and I remember sitting in that kind of like where they send you for like all the GD moms, you know, and you know, a variety of body types, like it didn't seem to discriminate on size. And I think what was sort of weird is that I noticed that I fell into that trap of being determined to control it with lifestyle, you know, like I was resistant to the idea of medication. And I remember just doing what they told me, which ultimately was a profoundly restrictive diet and this sort of exercise regimen. And I think people get tripped up because then sometimes that works, right? Sometimes getting super restrictive and obsessive about your whatever, your carb portions and your exercise, sometimes that correlates to improvements in the labs. I share that almost as a cautionary tale because I know that's a conclusion a lot of people draw, right? Whether they're successfully able to do that or they're not. And I feel like we're missing a whole part of the story and a lot of people kind of get to that. Oh, it must be my fault. Or, oh, look how hard I've worked and now I've overcome it with my lifestyle. And I want us to get out of that binary and I'm hoping you can kind of weigh in. Right. So, I mean, I think that with regard to our health in general, we have to think about what's sustainable long-term And I'll just throw it into like the gestational component, right? So like generally diagnosed like 26, 28 weeks kind of thing. And then you're presumably going to deliver on 40 weeks. That's a short amount of time. There's maybe other incentives going on and things like that. Versus like if someone gets diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, this is a long-term condition. And this is something that people have to live with on a day-to-day basis over a long period of time. So yes, like, of course, like most people, and this is why diets don't work long-term, like people can be very restrictive, you know, for a certain amount of time, but the data certainly shows that it doesn't last long-term. And then the data is showing, you know, the evidence of weight cycling and weight stigma and all that stuff is actually worse for people in the long run. So that's why, you know, I think we have to come up with on an individual level, like what works for them. And that's why this blanket term of like, it's a lifestyle doesn't really work because like you and I are going to have different lifestyles. Like me and the patient are going to have different lifestyles. Like what works for me waking up early in the morning and like 
moving my body may not work for someone who stays up till like two in the morning. It's not a one size fits all approach. And I think that's where we get into problems of like saying like prescribing diets and prescribing like exercise that people like don't like and making assumptions and things like that. So it's health is a personal thing. And I think that it has to be something that that works and feels good and is long-term. And yes, that may include like more medications, but that's okay if that improves the quality of life. Yeah. I mean, so much of what you're saying, it requires us to lift stigma and shame and morality out of all of it. And I think that that is hard for people, you know, like those are the kind of codings that we don't always conscious of because I hear you saying, it's not that it's not about making lifestyle changes. It's not not that. But at the same time, like, let's be realistic. That looks so many different ways. And I think what you're, what you're saying about even the, the kind of gestational diabetes circumstances are so short term versus which like maybe someone can kind of squeeze together enough you know, might to like eat this miserable diet for, you know, 10 weeks. But if this is going to be the rest of your life, I think what you're pulling in that data about how that's just ultimately a setup for binge eating, for weight cycling, for all sorts of horrible things, body image distress, um, full on eating disorders. And so we have to be able to, I guess, broaden this sort of, what do we mean by lifestyle? What do we mean by sustainability? I mean, let me be clear that there are certain people that can get that diagnosis and and flip the switch and like live that way for a long period of time. But like most people can't. And the people that are going to try and do that and like potentially like set themselves up for failure, that feels a lot worse than like coming to a consensus with themselves and with whoever their clinician is on like what's going to work for them. Well, so why do you think diabetes has become synonymous with a fat person's failing in particular? I think that's probably industry. I think that's probably, you know, research that doesn't control for things like social determinants of health. It doesn't control for weight stigma. Um, It doesn't look at all these other variables. So the correlation gets really muddied and like is called causation, basically. And a lot of the data that if you look at a study and like people lost weight and their blood sugar got better, people are quick to say, oh, it's because they lost weight. Right. But weight is not a behavior. So like what happened? Did they start moving their body more? Did they get more sleep? Did they go on certain medications? All these things. And there's certainly some great papers that have come out recently in review articles saying even independent of changes in weight, physical activity, sleep, all these things improve cardiometabolic health. So, you know, I think tying the behaviors separate from weight, which again is not a behavior, is really important. But I think, you know, obviously there's a lot of driving forces that just want to make it about the weight. Yeah. I mean, and even just marketing, when you see a person in a larger body and it's like a cautionary ad and talking about, you don't want this to happen to you. I mean, it's really, it's, it's spooky. It is, you know, and then obviously, you know, I don't know if this is being done as much anymore because I think people like realize how messed up it is and like how problematic it is. But yeah, like the ads without the people without the face and just like a larger body, you know, eating like fast food, like it's just ridiculous, you know? And then what does that do to the person in the larger body? Like as far as their cortisol and their stress levels to live and like have that 
feeling that people are pointing a finger, that's really bad for their health. So like, if you actually care about other people's health, the best thing you could do is like not stigmatize them. <laughs> yeah. When you say it like that, it's like, duh, you know, it seems so well, it's obvious. Like, yeah. Like, it's just like, if you really care about someone, like don't make them feel bad about themselves and like try and help them. But, you know, pointing fingers and making assumptions, you know, I hear it all the time. You know, if people come to see me and they're like, before anyone took a history or like my family is like, obviously like clearly implicated in a lot of this, they like say like, Oh, you should go exercise. If you thought about dieting, like all these assumptions to people that are like, actually, I just ran the New York marathon. Like, you know, but it's just Mm -hmm. like looking at someone's body and making this assumption, obviously problematic. It is. And I know before we started recording, I mentioned that as a therapist, I do, I work with adults that one of those initial injuries that they sustained, you know, to their sense of self and body image was in a physician's office and sometimes in an endocrinologist's office who was making the connection between their body size and their hormone imbalance. And in a really black and white, not particularly nuanced, not particularly compassionate way. And I think, as I said, you feel to me like a diamond in the rough, but you said, maybe not, maybe there are more people kind of coming along because this is so common sense. This is first do no harm. Like don't shame somebody. Don't sort of use sloppy science and, you know, make these kind of assertions because you have a lot of power as a physician and there's genuine harm being caused. And, um, are you genuinely feeling more hopeful? I think there is so much discussion and recognition amongst endocrinologists, amongst physicians um, about the harm of weight stigma. There's like no one questioning that. The research is clear on that. That is a wonderful, amazing foundation of where we're at with it. The question is like, what do we do about it? You know, and I think, you know, obviously like the progression for a lot of people who really tie everything to weight are going to say, well, let's just learn how to talk to people like in a non-stigmatizing way, but still have them change their bodies and like have them lose weight. Cause that's really the problem versus like, hopefully there's going to be more people in this health at every size camp. They're going to be like, totally weight stigma is really bad. Let's focus on behaviors and like people's weight may change. It may not, but like the data shows that by moving more, by getting enough sleep, managing our stress, getting enough protein and fiber, health does improve. So let's focus on those things. And that's the best way we can not stigmatize people because people across the size spectrum have insulin resistance and diabetes and, you know, all the other things that we deal with. So if we really want to take the stigma out of the equation, because we know that's problematic, Let's just focus on the behaviors. And if the weight changes, fine. But if we really should be looking at lab values and like long-term outcomes. Yeah. And sustainability in terms of behavior. Sustainability. Right. Because, right. Because in most studies, like the look ahead study is a big one. And a lot of these studies, you know, people over the first several years, if the intervention is a weight loss based intervention, which of course is driven by behaviors, you see after a certain amount of years, like the weight starts coming up. And, you know, I think that is problematic for a multitude of reasons, just psychologically. And also, I think we're seeing inflammatory wise and changes in set points and all these things. So I think that's kind of where we should be leading the discussion. Yeah, I'm hopeful that even just the way physicians like yourself are 
are stepping onto uh, social media as sort of influencers in this space and podcasts like this can kind of hopefully help facilitate that conversation. Yeah. I mean, I'm seeing articles, you know, from major media sources like shape and prevention. And like, even I just did an interview with men's health magazine. That's going to come out like in the spring, you know, where I try to like work this stuff in and certainly mainstream podcasts, you know, like yourself and maintenance phase and like even Dan Paris of like 10% happier, which I've been listening to for a long time from mindfulness perspective there, he's doing a whole anti-diet challenge this week. Wow. I didn't know about like seven days of like guests, um, all like in the anti-diet community. And he, I haven't looked at it totally, but he has like some challenge where people can actually sign up and do it. Wow. You know, that's a major podcast. So, and that's certainly not coming from like this, you know, area. No, I mean, and those are actually really hopeful and helpful uh, examples because I know too, like I see it in more um, mainstream channels, but I do sometimes think it's important to name it for other people who are kind of coming to us and we're maybe one of their first kind of points of something new. And then sometimes I'll have patients who are like, yeah, but it's like, it can't just be you and me like in this little therapy room. And is this real? Like, are there actually other people out there that, you know, hold these beliefs and are reading this research? And I think these are examples of how it's absolutely yes. And so we'll have to link to a lot of what you're, what you're sharing now. So, okay. With diabetes, if we have this risk factor in our families, and I guess I would say I'm one of these people who has a risk factor in that my father had it, I developed it at, you know, gestationally, which I was told it becomes then a risk factor for developing it later, you know, and we want to like value that, like we value our health from that perspective. And so preventing, like to do whatever we can in a kind of prevention spirit is of interest, right? I'm wondering what you recommend we do, what's really in our control, and how do we think about risk factors? I'm doing air quotes, not because I don't believe in them, but like genuine risk factors as a family without scaring our kids and ourselves. Yeah, totally. I mean, that's that's a great question. And I think that when we think about risk factors, you know, risk is like a possibility, certainly. But I think, you know, and I described this, like people ask me, you know, what's good for my thyroid? What should I be doing for this and that? And I kind of say like, whatever's air quotes, here we go. Whatever's good for you, like in general is like good for your endocrine system. So like, what's good for us? Getting enough protein and fiber and like, having mixed meals and and not being restrictive and not weight cycling and finding ways to move joyfully and like not overdoing exercise and getting enough sleep and managing our stress, all the behaviors that we all hear about and know are good for us. And someone may do all those things and still end up with diabetes. And you know what? That's okay because medicine has advanced so much to the point that if you continue with those behaviors, Yes, someone may end up on medication, but like there's nothing wrong with that. And you can live a long, healthy, hopefully happy, quality life as someone with diabetes versus, you know, being so hypervigilant and and restricting and being so concerned and maybe ending up there anyways. You know, so I think that's probably tied in with the whole shame piece is like, I just don't want to be like that person who ends up with diabetes. But like, you know what, like it may be beyond your control and being so preoccupied with it may actually be counterproductive. 
I think you're actually speaking to something that I hadn't even thought about, which is a sort of ableist like vibe. It's not to say we should all want diabetes. Like it's okay to not want to develop a, a condition that require you know that has serious side effects or serious symptoms related. But I guess what you're reminding me is like people with diabetes deserve respect. If you have diabetes or if you develop it, whatever the reason, it sounds like it's a kind of a multifactorial risk anyway, we shouldn't be shaming you preemptively or if you have it, like you should have dignity and respect and care as you are, even if you are diabetic in a bigger body who didn't have access to all the greens that you were supposed to, air quotes, have in order to stave this off. Like, so I wonder if you ever think about it that way, like this sort of, um, I don't know if you refer to it as a disability in the same way, but I think about how sometimes um, disability activists will talk about ways in which there's just so much stigma around having a limitation, having a health condition or you know, a physical disability. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think that's interesting. I mean, I think that if if someone's at a dinner with family or they're at a party or they're at their office, like having lunch, I think if someone knows that they have diabetes, there's a lot of eyes on them. And there's a lot of like, eh, should you be eating that piece of cake or like all this kind of stuff. So I don't know if that's kind of like what you're getting at with it, but like that certainly is like, feeling that that shame and that stigma like anytime you eat in public if you have like a carbohydrate and you have diabetes or whatever and and i think that's that's obviously problematic because a lot of times those people may go home feeling bad about that they did do those things have that cake or whatever or not have it and go home and like eat in their kitchen at like midnight because like they just like really wanted it and they restricted and didn't allow themselves to have it so yeah, I mean, I think people could feel like it's a disability or that they're not able to do things like have cake and like, you know, eat whatever they want at a party, those kinds of things. Yeah, I mean, and I guess on the flip side, like if you are a person, uh, let's say growing up with diabetes and let's say part of your unique, you know, personal care plan that you're aligned with is one where you are counting carbohydrates, for example, or mm. like there is a at least the visual looks restrictive to some extent, or there's a kind of, oh, you know, mom doesn't eat this or mom's diabetic, she has to X, whatever. I mean, I think a lot of families that have diabetes in it, like, or have a diabetic family member, I think you know what I mean. If, right. if that parent is like, oof, I, I'm concerned about the unintended consequences of this, of like these eating choices that are are designed to help me control my blood sugar, for example, but I'm I'm afraid of the implications of what that looks like to my kids because I really want my kids to be food positive, fat positive, et cetera. I'm curious if you have any kind of wisdom to shine on that. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to like key into, you know, what I learned from Alexis and like the intuitive eating movement, which is like something like mommy or daddy or whoever it is, doesn't feel good when I have these types of foods. It doesn't mean that they're bad or good or whatever. But when I eat these things, I get more thirsty or I get more tired or to go to the bathroom more often or whatever, but that's just my body. And that doesn't mean that the same thing is necessarily would happen to you. But when you have those things, learn how to check in with yourselves. And if, if you, as the child feel fine eating those things and you enjoy it, go for it. Yeah. 
I like that. And that's sort of, again, connecting it to that embodiment, how your body feels and, and also making space for it to be okay that we're different. Like that what makes me feel one way might make you feel different and only you would know how you feel inside. Look, if someone has like whatever, like let's say the parent has lactose intolerance or like celiac or like something like that. And like, you know, the kid doesn't, it's like, well, when I drink milk, like it upsets my stomach. So like, I'm not going to do that, but you can digest it fine and like enjoy your milk. Like that's it. (laughs) It's an important connection to make because I think there's so much less charge and stigma around lactose intolerance, you know? Right. Um, Right. Everyone gets that you don't want to be like running to the toilet to like go to the bathroom, (laughs) like after you have a glass of milk. So like, whatever, use that analogy. Yeah, no, I love it. Cause I think it also calms people down a little bit where it's just like, you know, lactose intolerance, diabetes, you know, you gotta make, you gotta just, whatever your body is your body. You gotta pay attention to it. Yeah. It's just the way, like, I don't process the sugar the same way that you may. And, you know, for me, it doesn't work, but for you, it's okay. You know? Yeah. No, I, I like that. Well, I know you wanted to speak a little bit about Alexis's book and hopefully we'll have her on it at a certain point, but I wonder if you could share a little bit about it and also why you as an endocrinologist and, you know, given the, the work that you do and the kind of patient care you offer, why, why this is an important resource, um, and how it connects to diabetes even. Right. Totally. So, um, yeah, we both, Alexis and I both came from similar traditional backgrounds and in endocrinology, she worked in like bariatric surgery research and, and all this kind of stuff. And then she started seeing clients who have histories of disordered eating and are in larger bodies. And she thankfully came across haze and mindful eating and started bringing it home and discussing with me. And it took me probably way too long to like actually get it. Cause I was like, yeah, but like diabetes, like the same thing that I'm like saying is like, you know, cause it's like so ingrained in our training that like, you shouldn't have fruit. Like you shouldn't like, that's how I learned medicine. Like, so, you know, and I like read her book and, and she tells like these stories and like, you can picture these characters in your head and I just felt for them. And then I like also in conjunction, like started getting referrals from the Hayes community and just really listening the people's experiences and just really just breaking my heart of like what has been done and said and like where they're at in their own, you know, health journeys. And that's kind of like where I ended up. And then I guess it was like shortly around the time reading her book that I was like, I want to jump into like social media a little bit and try and promote this a little bit and see if I can make a difference. And and that's kind of where we're at. Yeah. And I know that mindful eating is a big part of her. And and I don't think we've made the connection that Alexis Connison is your wife. Right. <laughs> and, but I know that she talks a lot about mindful eating and um, has a whole kind of mindfulness program around that. And right. if I ask you as a physician, you know, like what is it that sells you on not just your empathy, obviously is clear, got you to where you are to some extent in terms of that transition from more, kind of, I don't know, weight-centric model to where you are. But from a scientific perspective and just a logical perspective, what connects for you about mindfulness, mindful eating, and why that feels like such a good recommendation for people struggling, let's say, with endocrine issues? 
Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, we start off by talking about my fascination with the endocrine system, and the same could be extrapolated about the whole body in general. And I think mindfulness, and I know mindfulness is all about tuning in to not only the current moment, but tuning into our bodies and what we're feeling, you know, not only emotionally, but physically. And to me, it just made sense that, like we were talking about with the parent who doesn't feel good after they maybe eat a certain food because the blood sugar could go high or the lactose intolerance or whatever. And just using our internal sensors, like our greatest tool that we have rather than external forces to know what works best for us. Like if someone hates running and they feel bad doing it for a multitude of reasons, like don't do it, but you like yoga, you like spinning, you like karate, listening to your body and like having that sustainability just makes sense and being able to check in with ourselves. And I took a mindfulness-based stress reduction course um, because Alexis recommended it after like years that she had done. She's like, you're so anxious, like take this course, like please. And like I took it and it was like changed everything for me, including like my fascination with medicine, just listening to the heart and like being present, like in the exam room when I'm with a patient instead of thinking about all the phone calls that I have to return and the prescription that I have to send. So mindfulness is incorporated in my life. And I knew that if I could help patients to recognize that in themselves and make that as a prescription, hopefully that would be helpful for them too. Yeah. Which mindfulness course did she sign you up for? It was um, at the JCC on the Upper West Side. It was like, you know, the um, John Kabat-Zinn evidence-based medicine yeah, yeah. one. It was eight weeks. In person or it was? This was in 2018. <laughs> the before times. <laughs> right, right. It was in person. But that being said, like a lot of things, like by being virtual these days, it gives a lot of people access to these MBSR mindfulness-based stress reduction courses via Zoom and, and digitally. So yeah. I think that's that's a benefit. Well, it's a good call to action. It will benefit everyone preventatively. And if you're struggling with any kind of chronic illness, it, it can only benefit. I know that there are sometimes mindfulness-based stress reduction tracks specifically for people with chronic pain or chronic illness. So so that so that's where it started. Um, so John Kabat-Zinn, I believe, you know, out of UMass, started looking at it with patients with chronic pain and I think, you know, depression and other kinds of things. And then recognizing that it was just could be beneficial for everyone, you know, living in the world that we live in. Especially now. Right. Right. Well, this was incredibly thorough and useful. Is there anything we left out? Anything you want to make sure our listeners should know? I think it's really important that um, we do the best that we can to, as as you're doing and your platform does, to educate our children and, and those around us and the next generation that bodies are not all the same shape and size and they're not supposed to be and appreciating the differences amongst ourselves and treating everyone with respect and not making assumptions based on how someone looks or what they're eating or how much they're moving. And health is a personal thing and people don't have an obligation to be healthy. Like, you you know, if someone decides like, I don't want to be healthy, like that's the prerogative, you know? So, but just kind of teaching the next generation that, you know, health is complex and it's individual and, you know, we shouldn't make any assumptions about people based on how they look. And if we care about them, not doing that is the best thing we could do to take care of them. Well said. Thank you so much for this 
you're very generous with your time and knowledge and it's such a, it's such an important contribution to this project. Um, diabetes just, Oh, I feel bad for diabetes. It just gets so much, there's so much anxiety around it and it becomes that, like I said at the beginning, what about diabetes or this is all great. This body positivity is so great. Intuitive eating fine, but what about diabetes? And hopefully this conversation starts to answer that question. I hope so. So that's today's show. As always, please, if you're enjoying the show, rate, review this episode on Apple Podcasts, share this episode so more people can join this body positive nurturing movement. Thank you all for listening and tune back in next time for more body positive nurturing wisdom.